theme song time. Vertigo voice. I can't keep doing that. It's <laughs> fucking dumb. <laughs> I keep trying to find new ways to make jokes about the theme song, and it just doesn't, never, never quite lands for me. Well, I put you in a tough spot. My harpsichord broke. So. Even, and that joke is not even any funnier. It's just, <laughs> no, none of this is working. No, it's not. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Welcome to another episode of Vertigo Voices. I'm Colby. I'm Sophia. And we're once again talking Vertigo all goddamn day. That's what we do. Vertigo shit here and there. Um, so, phone check. <laughs> <laughs> Phone check. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yours is off. <laughs> Good. Keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Very responsible podcaster this time around. Um, I don't have any news today. Um, I, yeah. You know, I have some news. My news. Have you been watching anything? <laughs> <laughs> None of it comic book related. Just in general. Anything good? I don't know. Oh. i got to fill time. <laughs> I don't have any news. <laughs> oh, did uh, you and I talked about it, but I don't think we put it on a podcast. Uh, the Harley Quinn animated series. Oh yeah, that's so much fun. I've really been enjoying it's a good that. Show. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen the second season. I've only watched the first. It's been a few months. I need to get back into it. The second season is a blast, and uh, I really love the casting of Harley Quinn. Uh, Kaylee, how do you say her last name? Quaco. Quaco. <laughs> yeah. I think it's Kaylee Quaco. I don't know. <laughs> she is a fantastic Harley Quinn. Just, just. Yeah. She's. Got, I mean. I liked her in The Big Bang Theory. That's the only other thing I've seen her in. But her comedic chops and her uh, energy just really get to shine in this. I don't know that I've seen her in anything other than this. I've seen just enough Big Bang Theory to know that I fucking hated it. <laughs> like, like if I watched any more, I was going to hurt someone. <laughs> so I don't think I saw any of her on that. That's fair. And I don't know that I've seen her in anything else. But yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I think she does a really good job in this. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I, I sped through that pretty quick. There's another series on Amazon Prime that I started to get into called Euphoria. Utopia? Is it Utopia? I think so. The new series. With like I think Rain Wilson's in it. I don't know if Rain Wilson's in it. Zendaya. As the oh. Kids call oh! Okay. So that, is that on Amazon? I think so. And I think it is Utopia. So, yeah, kids, don't listen to me there. Hold on, hold on. Let's go back. So this is the one I'm thinking of, Utopia with Rain Wilson and John Cusack. Oh, okay. And it's it's an Amazon Prime show, but it's it's based on an older, a couple years older, British series. But Euphoria is a show with Zendaya, but that was on HBO. Was it? Yeah. Well, I... Yeah. Yeah, it's an HBO show. I do so if you're watching a show with with Zendaya, then it's Euphoria, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I've heard good things about it. Didn't, it. didn't she win an Emmy or something? I think so. And I'm only, like, I just started it this week. I'm only four episodes in, and I'm really enjoying it. Hey, Maud Apatow's in it. Cool. Oh, is that? Judd Apatow's daughter. Okay. Oh, who, who, does she, who does she play? Lexi Howard. Uh-huh. Eric Dane's in it. He was the, um, he was Multiple Man in X-Men 3. Oh. Sure, he's in a lot of other stuff, but that's the only thing I've seen him in. <laughs> and because I hate that movie so much, but I love him in it, and I, he's, he's always going to be Multiple Man to me. <laughs> <laughs> he gave it his best shot. 
He has like two lines and he owned them both. <laughs> Nick Blood's in it. He was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, so Euphoria, so it's good? You like it? So far. Okay. So far, so good. Nice. What about you? Um, I've been just been watching a lot of old Doctor Who. Okay, like how old? Tom Baker, Fourth Doctor. All right. My collection there. Um, I I don't know why. I just got back into it. I just watched Underworld. It's one of his stories. I don't I don't know why. I because I I've been like slowly working through my collection of Doctor Who stuff over the last several years, <laughs> and like none none of that I'm none of what I'm watching now are new to my collection. I've had these DVDs for probably three or four years. <laughs> I'm just now getting to them. Well, hey, better late than never. Yeah. I don't know why. It's something about like the transition to winter always makes me want to watch Doctor Who. Just a seasonal tradition, sort of? I guess. I don't know. Because mostly November for me is all about MST3K. Mm -hmm. Every Thanksgiving they have their Turkey Day special. <laughs> but yeah, for some reason I've just been, like, I don't know, I, I like Doctor Who when it's cold out. Fair enough. I confess uh, my sins to the rest of the nerd community out there. I have not seen a single episode of Doctor Who. Wow. But, and I'm not proud of that. Wow. <laughs> I've been watching some of the newer ones as well because I, I didn't have a way to watch the new episodes. But now that they're all on HBO Max, I have finally been getting back into them. I guess she's been on it two seasons now, but she's still the new Doctor, uh, Jodie Whittaker. I really like her. But I don't really like the new, the new seasons. There's something about them. The the way, so she's got three companions now. So there's like four characters, and every one of those characters has to have something to do in an episode and has to have kind of an overall story. And when you have that many characters fighting for screen time, I feel like whatever they're facing that week gets less of has less of an impact. Mm -hmm. There was one episode that I really fucking liked so far that was like perfect to me that introduced another doctor that this doctor didn't know how this one came to be. Like they don't, their timelines don't interact. Like one of, she's not the past version of her and she's not the past version of her. Like they're, and so it's like introduced this big mystery. And I was like, fuck, that's really cool. How's that going to get resolved? Well, the next two episodes haven't addressed it at all. <laughs> like they just well. keep going. Like, God damn it. <laughs> Strain you along. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. And, and even the companions she has, like, I really like them all. They're all really good actors. But there's just something about the overall narrative that isn't grabbing me. Hmm. I don't know. Do you think it matters where a newbie drops into Doctor Who? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking dense. I mean, it's, it's a series that's been going for, like, 60 years now, almost. Mm -hmm. And there's been gaps there. But if you want to start it, you should just start with the, uh, what's his name? Um... Christopher Eccleston. Oh. It was designed as a starting point for new watchers. Okay, okay. And that's what I, where I started. And, you know, there's, if, if you want to get a taste of it, there's one specific episode that's a really good one for new people called Blink. Blink. Yeah, and it's a David Tennant episode, but it's kind of unconnected to the major stories as a whole, and it gives you an idea of kind of the weirdness the show inhabits. It's these stone statues that move when you're not looking at them. Okay. And yeah, it's, it's a really good episode, but also the Doctor isn't even really in that one very much. So it's like an audience surrogate that's working on a mystery, so you get to like follow along with her as you discover who the Doctor is and all that, I guess. I think that's why that's a popular first episode for people. Okay. Takes you deeper into the world. Yeah. But if you're really going to get into it, I would suggest just going back to the Eccleston run and 
there's 12 years of stuff from there, so <laughs> plenty. I need to start somewhere. I have a young cousin who uh, still looks at me aghast when I am with disappointment in her eyes every time I tell her, nope, haven't, haven't watched that yet. So. And there's been a couple episodes written by Neil Gaiman. Oh. Yeah. He wrote one-tenth Doctor, eleventh Doctor episode <laughs> called The Doctor's Wife, I think. No, wait, yes, no. <laughs> Maybe. He wrote an episode called The Doctor's Wife, Nightmare in Silver, and a mini-episode called Rain Gods. Mr. The, Gaiman. Those are two 11th Doctor stories. So they were like, what, 2011 and 2013. Guy has written so much. Yeah, so anyway, I like Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice, especially this time. It, sometimes it just helps to return to old favorites. Uh, okay, so we kill enough time. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? You're in charge. <laughs> no, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know what? I'm gonna rank all of the doctors. <laughs> okay. Into categories of verted doc go. <laughs> My harpsichord joke is a lot better than that. <laughs> <clears throat> I disagree. <laughs> Comment down below. <laughs> the funny thing is, I just I just pissed away like a perfect segue into talking about Neverwhere <laughs> by talking about Neil Gaiman writing for Doctor Who, and I, I was like teeing it up in my mind. Then I was like, I looked at the timer. I'm like, we're only ten minutes in. We need to talk more. <laughs> so, did you know that Neil Gaiman wrote a couple episodes of Doctor Who? No. Hey, speaking of Neil Gaiman, <laughs> this week, what are we reading? <laughs> The uh, graphic novel adaptation of his best-selling book, Neverwhere. Neverwhere by Mike Carey. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> 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 Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere by Mike Carey and Glenn Fabry. Yeah, so we're talking about that. I mean, Neverwhere, uh, I, we've mentioned before, is a big franchise. <laughs> it's been quite quite a bit in the Neverwhere-averse. Which That's, I did not realize mm-hmm. until talking with you. Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of people think of Neil Gaiman, think of comics or novels, and especially with Neverwhere, they think of his novelization because it didn't start as a novel. Neverwhere started as um, a BBC miniseries that he wrote for the BBC, and then as they were filming it, he was just hanging out on set, adapting it into a novel. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. So the TV show came first, then the novel. Then the like audio book and audio drama. No, sorry, comic book then audio drama. All right then. Yeah. So does the novel? It follows the series pretty closely. Yeah. I imagine. So uh, one of the interesting things to me about Neverwhere is it's so many things. You know, like I fucking just listed it's all those things, but it's remarkably consistent. Mm-hmm. The differences between all of the versions are as tiny as this character doesn't say this one line in this one, or this character's in a different... Okay, like one big difference. At the beginning of the story, um, there's a scene in the novel and the comic book where Richard takes a bath. Mm-hmm. And that's not in the TV series. He's just wandering his apartment in that scene. Okay. And Gaiman said that he had intended to have the character in the bath. 
And when they were filming it, they're like, it's too difficult. We're not going to do that. And he was like, damn you. I want him in the book. I'm going to write my own book. Well, That's, of course, a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> Again, we vet our sources here. That leads into an interesting bit of comedy that we'll talk about later when we dive into the graphic novel. What is your book report about Neverwhere? Oh, well, <laughs> that's a good question. I should have thought this one through better. This is an easy one. <laughs> an unsuspecting young man who works at a London accounting firm is drawn into a magical world when a young woman from London below stumbles onto the street wounded and in uh, being pursued by some very nefarious characters he takes her home he tends to her wounds and his world totally unravels from there once he becomes invisible to the average person and it's like he didn't even exist and so now he has to go on this adventure with Dor the young woman that he saved in order to reclaim his life and as she tries to figure out who brutally murdered her family and to get vengeance yeah. Did I about sum it up? I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. I, uh, I, re- I really like this story. I think I mentioned that this was, this is like my Neil Gaiman story because I've read or listened to or watched all the versions of it. I've watched the TV show multiple times too because it's only six episodes and it's, it's a quick, breezy watch. And it's not perfect, and it's probably not the most perfect version of this story, but I fucking love it. But I read the novel first. I actually bought the novel, I think I was junior in high school, sophomore, something like that. I bought the novel as my family was going on a trip to Hawaii. And I spent a good chunk of my time in Hawaii sitting next to a pool with my face in that book, just devouring it. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard to put down. I mean, that's my first... Neil Gaiman prose that I read. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just blew me away. And I, I have, it, one of the interesting things to me about this story is that since it's been a TV show and a comic book, there are two really distinct visual representations of these characters. Mm-hmm. And they're very different. Like the versions of these characters in both are totally different. And then there's my own version of my head from when I first read the novel. And then when I listen to the audio drama, I hear those actors. Like, I, whenever I hear Richard Mayhew in that, I think James McAvoy. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, four different versions of all these characters floating around in my mind. But they all occupy, like, equal space. Like, none of them are more real than the other to me. And I know a lot of people will be like, I don't like the movie because... Or just of anything. People are like, I don't like the movie because when I read the book, I thought that this guy should be better in, in the role. Or... I pictured the lead actor looking like this instead of that. Why does he have black hair instead of red hair? Me, you know, like shit like that. And yet for me, all of these are equally valid and they all take up the same space in my head. That's rare that a a story can do that. And like you said too, when it's so, there's so many different versions and it's so consistent across the board. And yes, we all have, uh, most of us have very deep, seated ideas about what a character should look like or who did it first if there's a you know a film or whatnot so the fact that all of those versions can you know be this one thing and their own thing i remember so i have zero love for the harry potter franchise like i don't 
care about it at all. <laughs> Seen the movies. I think I've read one of the books. I just don't give a shit about them. I remember when one of the movies came out. I don't remember which one because it's all the same to me. <laughs> but there's one where the Weasleys, so those are the little redhead fuckers. Yes. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Weasleys' house burns down in one of them. There's a fight scene at the house and it burns down. And one of my ex-girlfriends, her mom, was like a big Harry Potter fan. She's like, I can't believe they burned down the Weasley's house. That's so stupid. I was like, why? She's because like, it didn't happen in the book. I'm like, yeah, but what happens in the book at that part? Well, I don't know. They, they like stand around and talk. Like, exactly. <laughs> you have to have some action in the movie. She's like, but if they, if they burn the house down, then the next time you see it, they can't do this because there's supposed to be a party at the house. And if the house is burned down, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, it's fucking magic, you idiots. <laughs> they, can, they can literally do whatever they want. Right. The next time you see the house, oh, guess what? That party that she's talking about happens in the movie <laughs> at the house because they just rebuild it. <laughs> there you go. Because it's almost like none of this is real. <laughs> It's like it's a goddamn movie, and if you just watch teenagers talk for four hours, it's really fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, and people forget that. I mean, I've gone through my phase in life where, you know, people try to talk to me about a movie that's based on a book, and I've closed my eyes and been like, oh, well, you should probably read the book. But who wants to see the book exactly as it was up on screen? Yeah. That shit is boring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting to me how there's so many different versions of this story, but they're all basically the same. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, but, but except for the visual flourishes, you know. One of the coolest aspects to me about the comic book adaptation is how gaudy and ostentatious everything is. Mm-hmm. All of the characters just have the weirdest fashion sense. And, you know, Dor has like a tattoo of a keyhole on her eye. Which I assume that's a tattoo. I, I don't know. And, and that something like that is never described in the book or in the original show or anything. And and yet they found a way to take a story, not change anything about it, but then change everything just because of how it looks. Uh-huh. And it's a really interesting interesting thing. The, the style and the way... Um, oh, excuse me, Mr. Carey. Um, oh, did, <laughs> let's stop right there before I embarrass myself. Did Carey do the art... Or no, did Glenn, Glenn Fabry. Glenn Fabry did. Okay, excuse me. My yeah. Carrie is not an artist, only a writer. All right. He's just a meaningless writer. <laughs> He's just a hack. <laughs> no, I, I, obviously, I mean, you know Mike Carey because he wrote Lucifer. Yes. But it's interesting to me that, like, I mean, he's a, he's a good writer. He comes from prestige background with really well-regarded stories. So it's weird to me to see him write this, where he probably didn't do much new writing, you know? It's literally just taking that story and staging it in a comic. It makes me wonder how much he might appreciate and value the original story. Yeah. I mean, he's a big fan. Yeah. And he's worked with Gaiman a lot. Mm -hmm. Lucifer was a Gaiman creation. True, true. Well, he does a great job of translating. And the artwork, like you mentioned earlier, in terms of the character's style. Yeah, her whole family has that. Yeah. And it is like, is it a birthmark? Is it a tattoo? Like, is that something like you gotta get if you're born into that family <laughs> from a very young age? Um, but yeah, all of the characters are very distinct, which I appreciate. This was apparently also going to be adapted into a movie in the mid- late 2000s, like 2009. No. Evidently, the rights were sold to the Weinstein Company. Oh. <laughs> and then it was eventually abandoned. That's probably for the best. (laughs) (laughs) The main character, Richard, he's the one who is from the regular London and gets 
transported to London below. He, I, I like him as kind of the, I don't know, the, the everyman, the, I don't know what the word is. Everyman works. Yeah, yes. Sure. <laughs> I think he's a good everyman. But the, the book opens with a scene of him like hanging out with a homeless woman outside of a pub. Right. Before he goes to London. Because exactly. he's from Scotland, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that was added into the book because they got a Scottish actor to play him in the show. Oh. I think so. I don't, I don't, don't quote me. But I know that scene's not in the TV show and it's not in the comic. That's one of the only scenes that's completely lifted. Okay. All right. Which is like, it's like a two-minute scene, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just kind of gives you a little, bit, a little bit more background about where Richard comes from. Yeah. Oh, that was one thing. Did they have that joke in here? When he introduces himself. Oh, yes. Richard, Richard Mayhew Dick. Yes. <laughs> she, like, Dora asks him what his name is, and he says, Richard, well, Richard Mayhew, Dick. Mm-hmm. And she goes, nice to meet you, Richard, Richard Mayhew Dick. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not in the audio drama. No? I was disappointed at that, because I really like that joke. <laughs> it would have been fun to hear Natalie Dormer say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so in the original BBC series, Richard is played... By Gary Bakewell, who looks a lot like Paul McCartney. Seriously? <laughs> In fact, he's played Paul McCartney, I think, twice. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Uh, so the, I, the first time I saw it, and there's a scene where he sings the monkeys. Like, he sings the monkeys song. <laughs> I think that's in all the versions. Which is weird to hear a monkeys song come out of Paul McCartney's face. <laughs> <laughs> like some timelines got mixed up there. <laughs> To touch on what you said again about, like, the design, even the way Richard is drawn in these books, like, like you said, he's just an everyday guy. So he walks around in a suit for the whole run of the comic. (laughs) But uh, they just, I mean, they do a good job of just making him look like such a regular schmo amongst this fantastical world that he walks into. But I, it's, it's. I don't know how to describe it. It's like, obviously, he's overshadowed because he's out of his league. He's out of his depth. Yeah. But at the same time, he never gets lost in the background. Yeah. And I, I, I fucking love all of the characters in this. I, I love how everyone is so different. Like, there's a very interesting group of characters in these stories. And from Richard, the normal dude, to Dor, the, the young woman who's trying to solve her parents' murder, to... The, the two hitmen that are following her. Which, how do you pronounce the leader of the two little hitmen? How do you pronounce that name? Crew. See, that's what I thought. Crew. Mm-hmm. But in every adaptation, it's Croup. Croup. Yeah, Mr. Croup. It's C-R-O-U-P. And I always pronounce it like Coo, you know? Mm, me too. But no, it's, it's Croup. It is Croup. <laughs> okay. Excuse yeah. us. Croup and Vandemar, the two bad guys. And Marquis de Carabas and Angel Islington and Hunter... Old Bailey. Old Bailey in the audio drama is played by Bernard Cribbins. Bernard Cribbins. The British actor who uh, is really good in Doctor Who. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Doctor Who? <laughs> it's come up in conversation he's now in, again. He's in uh, quite a bit of Doctor Who. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah. Where's his name? There he is. But yeah, Neil Gaiman plays Figgis, the doorman. <laughs> and then he also plays a character that I don't think is in anything else. So do you remember... The scene, well, let me back up for a second. After Dor meets Richard and they decide to go on their little quest, they go to this market to find a bodyguard for her. And then when they do the, the bodyguard tryouts, you mm-hmm. know, 
I think there's a character named Varney that is like the bad guys are trying to hire to get in it. Well, whatever. Neil Gaiman plays a bodyguard in the bodyguard tryouts in the audio drama named The Fop With No Name. <laughs> That's fantastic, yes. <laughs> it's like a fucking, it's like a, uh, oh, like a Clint Eastwood, like Man With No Name, but with like this foppish British accent. Because, <laughs> yeah, he's in here too. This is <laughs> Wait, is The Fop With No Name in the comic? Yeah, he oh, is. okay, I didn't remember that. <laughs> funny <laughs> and barney kicks everybody's ass <laughs> yeah. i remember in the in the novelization or in, yeah in the novelization they specifically mentioned that barney fights a little person with a sledgehammer oh i remember that image of like a little dude with a sledgehammer like swinging it around like <laughs> god damn that would be cool to see it would <laughs> and speaking of the whole floating market so a big chunk of the story takes place in the, the floating market which is like this underground market that all the people in London below go to, and every once in a while it pops up and blah, blah, blah. Um, Gaiman loves weird markets. (laughs) (laughs) I can think of three stories just off the top of my head that have crazy weird markets in them. There's this, Stardust, and Books of Magic. Okay, yeah. All three of those have the crazy market where you can get, get some zany thing that the story needs, you know. You know, in this one you can buy, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, curry made of cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think so. so he, he's like two vegetable curries. And he's like, or no, he goes, there's one vegetable curry and one meat. Uh, what's the meat? And she's like, cat. And he's like, uh, you know what? Let's just make that two vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> or um, that leads into another joke. Um, what's the, how do you pronounce the name of the, the young woman who takes him across the bridge? Anastasia? Oh, uh, anesthesia. Anesthesia. Thank you, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a great part in the comic book where after she gets tasked with escorting him across the bridge, and you can tell that that's not something she wants to do at all, and she's got a little something going on a spit over a fire, and oh, yeah. she asks Richard, she's like, do you like Cat? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I grew yeah, up with yeah, him. Yeah. His name was, and she's like, well, I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> But then of all the characters, I feel like the one we should spend the most time on is the Marquis de Carabas. Yes. Why Why do you think he's illustrated the way he is in the comic? I was just curious. The, like, he, he looks like he's like a black void. He does. His face. And yeah, it's just, you can see his eyes and his teeth and like, that's it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm just an otherworldliness to him. He's not really described in much detail in the book. In the original BBC series, he's played by Patterson Joseph, who's a really good actor. And then in the audio drama, he's played by David Harewood from Supergirl. And it's just a it's a really interesting role, like that kind of duplicitous friend, you know, like the sidekick, I guess. The ally who you're not sure if they're really your ally. Yeah, exactly. And do you know where he gave me got the name? Oh, Puss in Boots. Yeah, it's from Puss in Boots. <laughs> Because I, I think Puss in Boots says that his, he's, he calls himself the Marquis de Carabas at some point or something like that. Or it's an imaginary character in Puss in Boots. Puss in the Boots. The young man who I can't remember if he's named or not in the fairy tale, but, you know, Puss in Boots is basically his hype man. So oh. every time the, uh, the beautiful rich girl and her father come along, he's like, oh, you just missed the Marquis. He's oh. gone on to his beautiful palace and da 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 da. And uh, yeah. So it's it's the uh, uh, moniker that he gives his young friend. The Gaiman stated that, uh, that that was a starting point for the character and imagined who would own a cat like that. 
Good point. Who would be an owner for Puss in Boots? The Marquis de Carabas. That's who. <laughs> As it turns out. Yeah. Patterson Joseph does a really good job with the character in the in the show. One of the funny things about it, so Marquis is typically depicted with long hair, and Patterson Joseph had long hair when they when he uh, went to start filming, and they said, "No, we don't like that. Shave it." So he shaved his head. And then when he came to set, they were like, okay, you know what? Never mind. We're going to give you a wig. Oh. <laughs> and so, so instead, he's got like a mullet where he's got like a shaved head and then dreadlocks just like the back of his hair. Oh, poor like, guy. It's an odd look, but he makes it work. I mean, it's Marquis de Carabas, man. <laughs> no question his, his hair choices. He's <laughs> aesthetic take. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm find a good... Yeah, there it is. He just makes it work. Oh, yeah, he does make it work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fucking jacket. Oh, yeah, he looks great. Yeah. Patterson Joseph's a fucking great actor. He's been in a lot of stuff. Um, I think the first thing I... No, the first thing I saw him in was this. Definitely. <laughs> but a few years later, I remember seeing him in a British TV series called Jekyll. With, I haven't seen it. Um, it was written by... Oh, Stephen Moffat, who went on to do Doctor Who. Um, but... Patterson Joseph plays like a, a CIA agent in that. And he does a pretty decent American accent. <laughs> but it was still like, you can still hear it creeping through, you know, the British <laughs> accent. But yeah, he's a really good actor. And then I, so for me, um, like I, I mentioned before that I already had all these characters like in my mind beforehand. And for some reason, the outfits of London Below, in my mind, it always looked like, like the inmates in Alien 3. I have no idea why. Okay. Okay. But you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That like kind of drab. Almost monk. Like yeah. Attire. Like that. There's, they're looking at a picture of all the characters from Alien 3, like standing in uh, what looks like a, a fucking sewer tunnel, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I, that might just be the connection in my mind, the fact that like it looks like they're underground the whole time. Mm-hmm. London Below. There you go. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Yeah. All right. I can see it. Where, and then like Crew and Vandemar. Krupp and Vandemar. In my mind, I always, uh, for Krupp, I always saw, going back to Alien 3, a Danny Webb. I know. I, I can't picture his face. He, he's an Alien 3. He's like the only survivor of that movie, but he's, he's just this wiry little British actor. <laughs> he, well, wiry. I definitely see him as wiry. I think he might have been in Dark City. Okay. That movie. I have. It's been a long time, but... I, I just rewatched it about six months ago or so, and fuck, that's a good movie. I need to rewatch it. Maybe Danny Webb's not in it. I thought he was. Well, now we have to look up Danny Webb, because I, I must know what this man looks like. There he is. Yeah, yeah, he could be Mr. Croup. Nope, he wasn't in it. <laughs> He's not in Dark City. God damn it. Who is that guy, then? <laughs> it's gonna haunt you. <laughs> And then, and then a Bruce Spence, I always thought of for Mr. Vandemar. Oh. Because of Dark City. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Oh, there you go. He does have that face. In the actual show, Clive Russell plays Vandemar. He's really fucking good. He's an actor that's been on a ton of shit. And Again, familiar name, and I'd probably have seen him in stuff. He was even in one of the Marvel movies. He was in Thor The Dark World. Okay. Probably seen him in that then. Mr. Croup. I've never... The guy that plays him in the movie or in the show, I've never seen in anything else. But. Did he do a good job? Yeah, he did a good job. I mean, they're, they're all good, man. This is all... <laughs> like every, every character and every adaptation of this is really good. And Peter Capaldi played the Angel Islington in the oh. original. And then in the audio drama, he's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. 
both excellent choices. Which Benedict Cumberbatch has done a shitload of voice work. I don't know that people realize how much voice work he's done for BBC and Big Finish and whatnot. He's done a lot. And he's a good voice actor. He is. He makes it work. He did voice that dragon that one time. <laughs> yeah, there was that. Probably the best <laughs> thing about those movies was his voice. <laughs> yeah, probably, I don't, even that. I just, <laughs> I just prefer not to think about it. <laughs> Painful memories. <I'm> Hobbit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, going back to the comic, I, I just really like the weirdness of, like, I mean, it's already kind of a weird story, but the fact that they were able to take that, yeah, the fact that they were able to take that and just kind of, like, crank it up to 11. Like, anesthesia is blue. Right. She's a blue person. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you never know why. And that's what I like a lot about the book and and comics, stories like these, is that um, Gaiman is one of those writers that knows how to use his imagination and pull you into that world without a bunch of insecure exposition. Yeah. It feels lived in. It, feel, it feels like this is a world that exists and you're just a little part of it. You're seeing a little part of it, I guess. Exactly. And uh, watching Richard go through it, poor guy. Um, oh, this, yes, this is the... Oh, the, the bathtub scene? The bathtub yeah. scene, yes. Like, it's in the book, but to see it illustrated in the comic, uh, for those who don't know, when Richard, basically after he helps Doris, starts to disappear from the real world, people can't see him, people can't hear him. Like, the one time he goes and, and actually makes contact with his girlfriend, she doesn't recognize him, or she's like, maybe I've seen you before. And there's a great scene where he just is totally out of his league. He's been threatened by Vandemar and Mr. Croup, and he's tired and exhausted, so he goes back to his apartment to take a nice, relaxing bath. And then all of a sudden, a realtor and the couple are in his apartment talking about, you know, do they want to rent it or not? <laughs> and at first, he like he's trying to have some modicum of decency where he covers himself up and he's all outraged. Like, what are you doing in here? And no one hears him. And I just look like it's really, really small. But then in the next panel, he's just like, fuck the towel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love when they leave and he's just sitting there naked, like oh, yeah, poor guy, <laughs> dejected. Right. Reminds me of the beginning of uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I've never Isn't seen it? that. Oh, really? No. Do you know anything? Do you know anything about the, the oh, opening I, scene? No. So it's all it's uh, what, Peter Siegel. Is that? I think no. so. Is his character's name Jason Siegel? Oh, Jason. Yes. Jason Siegel <laughs> stars in Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> He plays a character named Peter in something, and I'm sure I'm just conflating them. But anyway, the movie opens with him, like, like getting all ready for uh, his girlfriend to come home. And he, like, like brushes his teeth and takes a shower. And then when she gets there, he's just standing in a towel. And he, like, opens the towel. And he goes, I got a surprise for you. Oh, and you can, like, hear his dick going, like, <laughs> <laughs> as he's shaking his hips. <laughs> And then, uh, and then she's like, we need to talk. <laughs> and he goes, what? No. And she goes, no, it's fine. Just get some clothes on and we'll talk. And he goes, no, I'm not going to get some clothes on. Because if I get some clothes on, then this is going to be real. <laughs> and so he just sits down naked. And that's this whole, like, breakup conversation while he's just sitting there naked. <laughs> oh, things actors do for their art. <laughs> and Jason Stiegel has said that that was, like, inspired by a real incident where he was naked waiting on his girlfriend and then got dumped and he said the whole time all he could think of is like i just wanted to hurry up and leave so i can write this down 
because this is way too good to waste. <laughs> Saw the silver lining in the situation. He's like, this really sucks, and it's also going to make some excellent comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so see, yeah. Um, three, uh, what, is, what is that? Six degrees of um, Jason Siegel's dong. Six degrees of... <laughs> yeah. From Neil Gaiman to Jason Siegel's dick in... That was only a couple of degrees, really. <laughs> See, we we uh, we bridge a lot of gaps and make a lot of connections in this show. <laughs> well, now I have to see for getting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay, it's a decent comedy. I've actually been to most of where it's filmed. It's a good chunk of the movie takes place at Turtle Bay Resort in Hawaii, and I, well, not the last time. A couple times ago <laughs> that I went to Hawaii. <laughs> I've been there many times. Um, but one of the times that I went there, I stayed at that same place. And the funny thing is, like, walking in there, and I was instantly recognizing things from the movie. And a receptionist in the movie played by Mila Kunis is, like, the second main character, whatever. But there's a scene where he goes in and checks in to the, to the hotel. And when I walked into the hotel, I'm looking around, and I went to this little coffee stand. And as I was standing there buying coffee, I was like, this is where he checks in. Like, the coffee stand was the check-in spot in the movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's because there's a giant window right next to there that has a great view. So that's clearly where they put it, or why, why they put it there. Because the actual place that you check in doesn't look very cool at all. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, visually captivating. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun to, like, walk around that area and see where they filmed it and everything. Yeah, it's cool. That connects back to, uh, was that the same place where you first read Neverwhere? No, different <laughs> Same island. When I first read Neverwhere, yeah, that's weird that two Hawaii stories. In <laughs> <laughs> when I first read Neverwhere, it was at Princess Kaliani, I think is the name of it. It's a hotel in Waikiki. Right. A little, uh, little pool right next to ABC store. <laughs> have you ever been to Hawaii? I have not. It's ABC stores everywhere. Is it just like a, a... You must go to the ABC store. <laughs> to have the real Hawaiian experience. No, it's, like, it's like a fucking 7-Eleven. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere, and you can buy, like, um, towels and uh, uh, mats for the beach and snacks and whatever. Like, that's, that's the tourist thing. Like, every, every block is an ABC store. Everything you need to sit on the beach and read Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Eat some Spam Mustubi. <laughs> Good stuff, by the way. There, that's that's where I first discovered that. Is that an ABC store in Hawaii? <laughs> well, it works. I don't know how why it works, but it's delicious. Yeah. That was like the best. It's because the Hawaiians know what they're doing when it comes to spam. Like we uh, we mainlanders need to figure out <laughs> spam's pretty fucking good. <laughs> cook it the right way. Embrace it. <laughs> what did you think of the big reveal with Islington? Oh, well. <laughs> When at the first reveal, honestly, I thought Islington was female. Mm. Um, the you know, I, I guess I really wasn't that surprised. Are you talking about the book? Or the, you've read the book. Right? I've read the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I, yeah, when I read the book first, I was surprised. Yeah. Um, but reading the comic, I I mean, I knew who it was going to be, but um, I I like the fact that, in my opinion. He looks like a she, but he's a he. Yeah. Well, he looks like a fucking club kid from the 90s. <laughs> like, he totally looks like a New York... Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Like party scene. Yeah. I'm going to dress like an angel and drop yeah. some acid. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, all he's, all he's missing is glow sticks. 
And it, it's funny because in the, the BBC series, it's uh, just, what's his name? Uh, Peter Capaldi in like this robe that reflects light. So it just look, it looks like he's shimmering all the time. Okay. okay. And which is like diametrically opposed to like the crazy ostentatious costume in in the comic. Indeed. <laughs> well, I liked the introduction in the comic because it does give you this impression of just overwhelming power and this unending entity. So, admittedly, and this is just a small small nitpick. It doesn't really matter, but when you see him in, you know, regular form in terms of him actually being on the same size uh, as the regular people, for lack of a better word, it is kind of like, oh, well, you're more impressing when you're this huge. (laughs) How dare you say that? (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Oh, wait, I was going to look up. Um, I was going to look up a picture of Angel Islington from, god damn it, I forgot that's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there he is. Um, yeah, it's not very... You can't see the... There we go. There's a good picture of the robe. Oh, yes. Very like, bright. I don't know how to describe it, but it, like, yeah, like, reflects light. And then, uh, the, uh, the wine that he gives them. Remember? It's about, the, oh. like, the... It's wine from, uh, Atlantis. Yes. Yeah. And in the show, it's, like, bright yellow, and it glows as well. And, like, every time I see that, like, I always imagine what it tastes like. I'm like, I want to fucking try that yellow, glowing Atlantean wine. Well, very rare. I bet there's yes. the only ones besides him that gets to try it. I'm going to find it! Damn it! <laughs> yeah, totally different in the comic. It looks like, uh, do you know who Zariel is? DC character? a bell at the moment. Zariel was a character that Grant Morrison created in the 90s for his JLA comic because he really wanted to use um, Hawkman. Oh. And he wasn't allowed to because of complicated, stupid continuity shit. So he cre- created a new character with wings <laughs> so that he could have his own, quote, Hawkman on the team. And he's like a pasty white angel dude with golden armor. Fair enough. And that was one of my favorite Justice League characters back in the day, just because I loved Morrison's run on that comic book. I like the way that he's drawn. He is very vivid. Yeah. Very striking. Sword. It's kind of been forgotten. I had that toy. Oh, I miss that toy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's kind of been forgotten in uh, comic book lore now with all the fucking reboots. Um, For a while there, in like the mid-2000s, he was on a team called the Shadow Pact that were like mystical superheroes, I guess. And uh, after, I, I don't even know if he's around post-New 52. I guess I don't care. I'd rather not see a New 52 version. <laughs> I want my Zario. <laughs> rather remember him as you already do. <laughs> anyway, so I, I think I think that influenced my my own personal picture of Islington. Mm-hmm. He was kind of based on Zario. So it was funny to see that a bit of that design influence in the... Mike Carey story. And it is, uh, I think it's a very well done design. We obviously, Glenn Fabry knows what he's doing. The art is fantastic. Um, yeah, I guess, does does he have an impact as a villain in the comic, though, as he does in the book or the show? I don't know. It's all the same to me. Like I, said. <laughs> I feel like whichever one I read the first, the surprise would be stronger, I guess. I don't know. I 
I also like it's one of those characters that from the very first introduction of him, it's like, well, he's the bad guy. <laughs> you know, it's really obvious, even as a like you know a youngster reading this, I, I saw that coming. Which, but who cares? That's this is that kind of story. True. Yes, it doesn't take away from the overall story. Yeah. Uh, so you know that the cover of the DVD, just like a fist pointing up with flames coming off of it. Uh-huh. Uh, did you know that that had to be digitally edited because the original image uh, was considered to be like offensive? Or no, it was again, it, it didn't pass British standards and practices, I guess. Why? Was it flipping somebody off? Or? No. It's the same image, they just had to digitally manipulate it. Uh, that was the original. Okay. So the original, instead of a fiery fist... It's got, it's just the same picture of a fist, but it's got uh, rings on each finger, and the rings have little blades on the front of it. Mm-hmm. And the BBC felt that that was, like, condoning violence or something. Like, the blades were too far. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing graphic or violent or gross about it. It's literally just, like, ornamental rings with weird points on the end. Yes, yes. Sharp brass knuckles. Yeah, the BBC did not like that, so they made them digitally alter it to where the blades are now fire, like flames. Oh, BBC. Ha, okay. Oh, there's there's Richard Mayhew in the show. Oh, there you go. uh, He does look like Paul Paul McCartney McCartney himself. Wow, (laughs) dang. That's Hunter and Dor. Who plays Hunter and Dor in that? Hunter is played by Tanya Moody, and Dor is Laura Fraser. Okay. I don't know that I've seen anything else from either of them. Gaiman actually didn't like the design of Hunter in it. No? Because, I mean, she's uh, she's got her spear, and then she's got, like, gold kind of body armor. And Gaiman didn't like that because when she's introduced, there's a joke about how she says, like, she's selling her services or something like that. And Richard's like, oh, Because <laughs> Richard assumes that she's a prostitute. Right. And so Gaiman said, like, if you look, like, that's, she's not a prostitute. <laughs> like, no. she's, she's got a spear and she's got body armor and <laughs> she looks tough and ready to fight. Like, she's clearly a bodyguard. And so he said that that joke loses all impact when that's what he, uh, when that's what she looks like. Good point. Yes. <laughs> yes. In the comic book, they kind of split the difference a little bit. They give her a little bit more skin. Right. And she's wearing, like, a furry-ish coat. So I guess that joke could work, but I don't know. It works better in the comic book. Yeah. This has also been a stage play as well, which I have not seen. Hmm. Uh, There's been a few stage plays. Oh. 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2011, 2013, and another in 2013. So there has. I would think it would be kind of a hard one to adapt to the stage. In 2011, there was one in Portland, Oregon. Okay, then. It's not a musical, right? Fucking better not be. I mean, I love musicals. I know how you feel about them, but I just don't feel like this is one that would lend itself well to a musical. I am Dor. <laughs> yeah, that could... Uh, what rhymes with opening? <laughs> key metaphors, key metaphors. <laughs> That's one bit that was cut out of the audio drama because I don't know a good way to dramatize this, I would assume is why. Um, at the beginning of the... F- Story when Dora's being chased by Crew and Vandemar and that like mercenary that they hire. Mm-hmm. When she turns around and like touches him in the novel, it says it, all it says is that she opens him, <laughs> and that's like all that's said. And then in the 
BBC series, it's like the guy has his back to the screen and you see her reach up to him and then you hear him scream and then you see like blood spill out. So it's again, like you, it's inferred, but they don't really say it. Um, and in the comic book, it's much more graphic where you actually see his like chest open up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. But, uh, in the, in the audio drama, they just don't have that scene. (laughs) It's just her being chased by Krupp and Manabar and getting cut. Yeah, I can see how you'd want to trim that from the audio drama. There's probably some stuff in the in the book and in the comic that plays well, well plays better visually or with you know the descriptions that come with writing. Well, the audio drama doesn't have any narration. Mm-hmm. It's it literally is is like it's a it's like watching a movie without seeing it. You know, yeah, it's <laughs> like an old radio drama. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And some some audio dramas have narration, some don't. Like the Sandman one has occasional narration by Gaiman just to set the stage or explain stuff that you can't see. So they could have done that here, but they didn't. It's it's very much like uh, Big Finish. They, uh, they're they a company that does audio dramas, and most of theirs have zero narration. Mm. It's literally just like listening to a movie. There you go. Okay, so Neverwhere. Is this a Verda Slow? A Verda Sta? Is this a Dr. Go? <laughs> <laughs> It's a g- Neil game on or Neil game off. <laughs> it's game on. <laughs> Took me a while, but I got there. You did. You did. Persistence pays off for a stupid fucking joke. <laughs> Get it where you can, sir. <laughs> it's definitely a vertigo for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm trying to think of anything that I really didn't like about it, and I can't. Yeah. I mean, the art is fantastic. The characters are great. Um, you know, you just roll right along with the story and you just let it sweep you up. It's, yeah. it's one of those types of tales. And I, I really like how the character motivations are all very clear. Right. Everyone is in it for something different, but it all makes perfect sense as to why they've come together or why they're being opposed. Exactly. You know? Like, even with Krupp and Vandemar, you know, they're a fucking immortal hitmen been doing this murdering people for thousands of years <laughs> like they even make that joke at one point when they kill spoiler alert when they kill the marquis de carabas and one of them's like never killed a marquis before and he's like yes we did it's like, what <laughs> like yeah we did in like you know 1512 or whatever like the it was the the marquis of gloucestershire or whatever whatever he says <laughs> oh yeah i guess so huh <laughs> yeah, you can tell that they really they really love their job yeah they, exactly they do well, that's that's a great illustrated part in the comics too. That um, I, I, I don't know why it delighted me so much, but it did to see Mister Croup eat that oh, yeah. ceramic vase. The uh, the Ming Dynasty. <laughs> yeah. So. Was it Tang Dynasty? I don't know. Whatever it was. Yeah, the uh, piece of ceramic he gets. Yeah, and it's just, it's so funny because he just you're like, oh, he collects things. That's nice, and he just. <laughs> <laughs> He, like, cuts up his mouth, yeah. and he's bleeding, and he's just having a great time. Which, again, that's some kind of, that hints at some sort of weird supernatural thing with them that never outright says it. Like, is that what keeps them immortal? Eating old ceramics? Or <laughs> is, is that, like, a character quirk? Like, what is that? And the fact that they don't, uh, they don't ever really address it. And that's fine. It adds them a, yeah. an edge of mystery. Do they have the sticky spit in this? remember <laughs> there's this uh there's this moment in the in the bbc series where when they're putting up the missing flyers for door at the beginning 
and you just see, or you just see like an empty hallway, and you hear Croup say, Spit! <laughs> and then Vandermark goes, Quick! And then he slaps the poster over the wall and keeps walking. And Gaiman in the commentary for that's like, I just thought it'd be funny if they had sticky spit. <laughs> Moving on. Because <laughs> why not? <laughs> Which, one thing about the BBC series for a second, um, if you ever get a chance to watch it, it looks like it's, it's lit really weirdly. It looks like a BBC series from the 80s or 90s and that the way it's shot looks like it's a TV show, you know. It's single camera, but it just it looks very flat and TV-ish. And Gaiman said that they filmed it on video, and they, but they lit it for film. So the intention was that after they were done filming, they were going to put the, the tape through a process that made the image look more like film. But that never happened. <laughs> so you end up with a show that was shot on video, lit for film. So it doesn't, there's like a disconnect there. The lighting doesn't quite work with what they end up with. And Gaiman has since said that you can find like bootlegged versions of it, where the, the show has been like recorded on, on VHS and then a copy of a copy of a copy, you know? He said the more degraded the image looks, the more, the more it works. <laughs> like it looks better the more degraded it is. <laughs> Because the lighting isn't quite as weird and, and um, distracting, I guess. Huh. Well, when bootlegs actually do well. Yeah. Do right by the source material. <laughs> but that said, I've never had a problem with the way it looked. I also just talked about watching a Tom Baker episode of Doctor Who from like 1977. So I'm used to the BBC style <laughs> of filming. <laughs> it's not jarring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I didn't have any big problem with it. I still think it looks fine. Um, it doesn't look as good as it probably would have, but I still think it looks fine. The stills you just showed me, um, they, they look good. Yeah, yeah exactly. It looks like perfectly, perfectly good television. I would be curious to rank all the different versions of Neverwhere, though. Hmm. What would, uh, what would your ranking be? I'd probably put the book first, because I read it first. <laughs> and then I'd put the BBC show, and then I'd put the comic, and then the audio. But the only reason I'm doing it in that order is because that's the order that I came to it. I read the book, watched the show, read the comic, listened to the audio. So that's completely unfair. Like, that's not a real ranking. <laughs> it's a personal ranking. Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> you know, um, and they're different mediums, true. So, and from what you've described, it sounds like they all get the, the spirit, Gaiman's intent for the story yeah. across really well. There's something about that that's just so odd to me that there are four versions of this that are so similar. Like, I don't, I, I don't know why that works. Like, this just, I think, you know, we talked about it earlier, but there's something about this story that just works so well that it doesn't need to be changed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is. I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, maybe, like, when you go to a concert and you hear one of your favorite musicians or artists play a song that you love that sounds almost like the way it's recorded on yeah. an album so you can sing along. Well, And, and it's just... Maybe in, in today's world, too, where I know I'm going to sound like rah, 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 back in the day, but... Oh, God. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I have a point to make, I promise. When there's so many different versions of one thing, sometimes it's easy to feel burnout. I don't know. Sometimes it's like, if the wheel is not broken, don't fix it. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know what, because we literally just talked about how film and print are two different things. You have to change things to make them adaptable, you know? 
We just talked about the fucking Harry Potter and the house burning down. So why is it that this works so well? Like, I don't, I don't understand why this works so well, but that doesn't. Hmm. I, I feel like every author wants this. You know what I mean? Every author wants to write something that's so perfect that it can be adapted unchanged and people will love it. That's, and I, I feel like that's really fucking hard to do. <laughs> it is. No, I mean, yeah, you, you think about other famous authors, like, you know, Stephen King's a great example. Yeah. You know, you read his book, you love his book, and then you maybe see the movie and you're like, I don't know if that works. And some of the best Stephen King adaptations change things whole cloth. Right. Look at The Shining. Absolutely. That's probably my favorite adaptation of his, and I... I've never read the book, and I don't want to, <laughs> because I know enough about the story of the book to know that the differences I don't think are better in the book. I think the movie improves on that. Right. Well, they're just two totally different stories. <clears throat> exactly. And why? so why is that? Why is it that some things are, have to be that different, and then this can be perfect in all versions? I don't get it. And I'm not smart enough to have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, neither am I, apparently, but and, and again, I don't have the basis that you do with all the different versions of the story. But yeah, maybe just a, a uh, uh, an obvious love for the source material from all the different mediums. You know, I don't know if you, if you get that respect and that admiration for source material when it goes around to so many different, different art forms, different tellings, and you have all these other people who maybe see it differently or they don't care about it as much as others. I don't know. But that doesn't address the question of adaptation, <laughs> how things need to be adapted to work. You know? Okay, like, look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's a really good example of changing what needs to be changed to make something work on screen. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of things like, I mean, I can't think of a single book, comic book or anything that has been adapted that should have been adapted 100%. No. You know? Even, like... The one example I can think of is Sin City, which was directed, you know, adapted directly from panel to screen. And I don't think that works as well as a lot of people think it does, you know. It feels stilted and weird <laughs> because it's literally a comic book put on screen. And so even, even with the best intentions, that still doesn't always work. So I don't know. There's something special about this story, and it frustrates me that I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's just the fact that, uh, that this is a story and that translates well to it doesn't matter the time period like I, this is one of those stories that i feel like it was great when it came out it's great now yeah. it'll be great in the next 20 years whereas no disrespect to sin city i like the first movie i like the comic book i haven't seen the second movie but you know the first movie was totally of its time yeah. and by the time the sequel came along like we had all moved on yeah i was gonna say have you seen the first movie yes then you've seen the second movie <laughs> it's literally exactly the same the only thing that changed in between there is that we all realized how crazy Frank Miller is <laughs> true, true which completely colors all of my rewatches of the first Sin City mm. I, can't, I can't really read Frank Miller even his old stuff or watch any of his adaptations and not think about that about <laughs> <laughs> crazy Frank Miller yeah. <laughs> like he's uh, watching Marv beat up cops and be like hey do you know that Frank Miller um uh, hates Muslims. Ah, <laughs> like, oh, god damn it! Get out of my head. You know. <laughs> stop! Stop! Like, well, that, that was really cool when uh, Clive Owen jumped onto that cop car and shot that guy. Like, hey, did you know that uh, Frank Miller thinks that um, Occupy Wall Street are a bunch of lazy kids? Like, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> he 
Yeah, sometimes you just you just shouldn't know anything about the people behind the, the works exactly. that you like. And then especially knowing that about Frank Miller, then reading his old work, like that's that's all in there. That's totally in his old stuff. Yeah, it, it has made it harder for me to read 300 again and not be like, wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dark Knight Returns is just like a right-wing libertarian manifesto. <laughs> and a lot of fans don't want to accept that. <laughs> yeah, like, no! Yeah, I find that hard to accept, too. I mean, you're, you're right, but there's part of me that's like, no! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just glad that we have not gotten that with Gaiman yet. Oh, yeah. Hang on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, you know, ups and downs, people disagree with whatever, and I'm, I'm sure he's not fucking perfect by any means. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he's been good enough over the years that I don't feel bad about still enjoying his stuff. Oh, not at all. No, and it's just the the differences that I have with him are just, like, sometimes creative differences. And it's, I can only think of one instance. It's the second season of American Gods. I haven't seen it yet. Um, the first season is fantastic. The second season is meh. It's not that great. Neil Gaiman had was very enthusiastic about the second season, even though that there was some uh, creative problems yeah, behind the scenes. Like a lot of friction, I think. <laughs> yes, um, and I, you know, it, it, again, it's a very tiny, minute picking point in that I think Neil Gaiman would probably even agree that yeah, as it turns out, the second season wasn't as dynamic as the first. So that's it. Well, it's the sophomore slump. Right. That happens. <laughs> so, okay, Vertigo for all the different versions of Neverwhere. They're all number one. <laughs> Listen, read, and watch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Listen, read, watch, and read. <laughs> it all comes back, yeah. full circle. So, oh, so how was your Thanksgiving? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Projecting into the future? No. I went to a coronavirus party. Because that is just all liberal propaganda. Did you know that? There's no virus. <laughs> well, shoot, I've been doing this entire time. So that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> if only I had bothered to look out my front window. <laughs> Jesus. No, I did not do that. I, no. I, I do not believe that. <laughs> Don't uh, use that to uh, like, come get me or whatever. But anyway, so yeah, this is going to be after Thanksgiving. Um, and then we'll probably take a, a winter break and come back. I don't know, maybe later December, January. I don't know. We'll figure something out. We'll be back. We don't have any good, big plans for the next episode. We'll figure something and yeah, go from there. So, okay, end of the show time. Like and subscribe. Follow on Twitter at Vertigo Voices or Instagram, Vertigo Voices. Not even going to mention that I got it right this time. <laughs> Wait, shit. <laughs> uh, email. Uh, our, our email is vertigovoices at gmail.com. And special thanks to the turkey I had mm, for yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. I don't this know. Is after Thanksgiving? I don't know. <laughs> turkey or duck? I haven't made up my mind yet. Turducken. Oh, yeah. My mom called me the other day and was like, because I'm, I'm going to my parents' house for Thanksgiving just because there's not, not going to be many people there. And my mom called and was like, since there's not going to be that many people, like it's just us. Should we not do turkey and just do like a Cornish game hen instead? I was like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> why are you asking me? I don't. I don't like, are you asking me because I have to cook it? <laughs> Is that what you're getting at? Because if so, then we're just doing cheeseburgers. So. <laughs> For which we will be thankful. <laughs> no. But anyway, yeah, so Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I got way off track. My special thanks. <laughs> 
special thanks to that noble Cornish game hen that gave its life for our Thanksgiving dinner. Cheers, little bird. I think we should all reflect on that over the next few weeks as we go into the rest of the <laughs> holiday season. All right, let's fucking cut me off because I'm just <laughs> rambling now. That's the pull. Yeah. Cheeseburgers or Cornish game hen. Anyway. <laughs> We hope you guys have a safe, happy holiday. Take care of yourselves, and we'll come back to you. And keep reading and watching Neverwhere over and over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Goodbye.